turn in your copy of the Bible to Revelation chapter 11. So when we, uh, when I started working through the book and breaking up sermon passages, I make, you know, divisions along my notes and then kind of generic themes and then present on the side of it how difficult of a text it'll be so that I kind of have good mental gauge for how to prepare for the week. And I think I had in this one ridiculously difficult, I think was the category for this one. So uh, just be prepared uh, as we dig in. God's Word, Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky. That no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. <coughs> But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was 
for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants and the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Yes, let's pray. Lord God, we do ask that you would, again, open your word to us. You've told us that you will sanctify your people in the truth, and your word is the truth. Give him to us now, we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Simple question, like simple questions, like simple questions that get complicated answers. Those are my favorite kinds. Find any young parent and ask them, what's it like to parent a child? And it's amazing how much of uh, an explanation of how their day is going as to what sort of answer you'll get. Right? If the baby's been laughing and cackling all day, you're going to get parenting is the best. I mean, there's nothing like it, the joy in their eyes. Maybe, actually, it was a different sort of day, and the child's been in unholy terror. The kind that you want to give back, but you can't. So you consult eBay for listing prices. Instead of, oh, parenting is a joy, you get parenting is a trial. It's the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. And I love both of those answers because is either of them wrong? Well, no, of course not. Parenting is a a tremendous joy. It's one of the greatest joys. Uh, Spiritual parenting, if you don't have kids of your own, also one of the great trials and difficulties in life. In fact, actually, I mean, you could think you could do that with most things. Tell me what it's like to be married. Tell me what it's like to be a pastor. Tell me what it's like to be a church member. Tell me what it's like to pick anything. And you're going to get, most oftentimes, both of those realities held at opposite ends of the spectrum at the exact same time. The problem with those answers, though, is as humans, we don't do a very good job holding two things in our mind at the same time. Most of the time, we engage one thing and we kind of just, you know, ignore everything else. Scientists are actually beginning to look at the inside of the brain and beginning to understand actually multitasking is a bit of a scam. Most people don't multitask. They just change gears very rapidly. Their attention span is actually so short, they can't focus. So what looks like multitasking is actually just a very short attention span. The problem is we do this again spiritually is that we oftentimes, thinking that we're trying to hold two things together, we just kind of constantly vacillate back and forth between them and not able to kind of richly and robustly appreciate both sides of the issue. One question that would come up with a passage like this, if you're going to think about it, and the understanding that I'm going to present to you, would be uh, the, uh, the answer or the question, I guess. How easy is it 
to be a Christian? How easy is it to be a Christian? And if we're honest, we can use the scriptures to prove this, right? You can jump in and say, well, it's super easy. It's the easiest thing ever. Right? All it takes is to receive the free gift that God offers, and even Jesus gives us that faith, and the Spirit gives us that faith. He reworks our heart, and then on top of that, Jesus himself promises that his burden is easy, his yoke is light, Christianity is so easy. You don't carry the fears of the world, you, you have the Spirit working inside of you, you have a supernatural power, it is so easy. And guess what? That is true. But at the same time, how easy is Christianity? You look around the world and Christians are dying in greater numbers than ever before because of their Christianity. And the second you become a Christian, not that they weren't arrayed against you before, but now arrayed against you in a new way, the world, the flesh, and the devil, your great enemies are all out to get you. So that Jesus even begins his first sermon, and it kind of builds to that climactic point, blessed are you when they persecute you and hate you, because they did that to me. And they're going to do that to you. They've done that to the prophets. They're going to do that to you. Both tensions at the exact same time. How easy is Christianity? It's spectacularly easy. It's spectacularly difficult. And both are true at the exact same moment. Revelation chapter 11, I think, is going to lay that out in kind of metaphorical narratival pictures, which is just a fancy way of saying Jesus and John are going to tell the story of the church using a bunch of Old Testament images to try to challenge our minds into holding both of those truths at the exact same time. Holding that Christianity is the most marvelous thing, it's the most glorious thing, it's the most wonderful and easiest and most blessed thing, but at the same time, it has very real and deadly challenges connected to it. The chapter starts with John being instructed (laughs) to go measure the temple, which again is a bit kind of odd. You're not expecting that one out of all the things that you're thinking is going to happen at this point in the story, uh, going out and becoming, you know, a surveyor uh, is really intriguing. It's particularly intriguing because at this point, uh, the temple's been destroyed in the neighborhood for about 30 years or so. And so there's no actual temple to be measured. Some would say, well, he's measuring the temple in heaven. That's absolutely not possible because uh, we also know that what he's not measuring is the part that's going to be destroyed by the uh, evil infidels which I'm fairly certain don't make it into heaven. So he's measuring something different, and it's largely here because it's being used as a symbolic illustration to capture the reality of the church. Rise and measure the temple of God. Again, remembering this is where God dwells in the Jewish understanding. For the Jew, God's presence was connected geographically. If you wanted to know him, you had to go to his place. Go measure where God lives and specifically the altar and those who worship there, which is intriguing because all the way back from chapter 6, we've seen that the altar is connected with the presence of the people of God. Remember, they've already been explained as residing underneath the altar. 
This is where the church lives. It lives beneath the sacrifice of Christ. It lives in the very presence of God. This is the portrait of God's people. Go measure God's church. Go take account of God's church. This is what's happening in Psalm 48. The end of Psalm 48, this is one of my favorite psalms. At the end of Psalm 48, it tells, um, the psalmist tells the listener, the singer, the reader, to go and to contemplate Jerusalem. To go look at her ramparts, to go count her towers, to consider the walls, to go admire the gates, to go admire the architecture of Jerusalem. Now, does he mean actually go admire the architecture of Jerusalem? Well, yeah, but the bigger issue is go admire the beauty of God's holy place. Go admire the beauty of God's holy city. Go admire the beauty of what God has done in his people. And that's the command that's being given to John here. Go account for the beauty of the church. Yeah, don't measure, verse 2, don't measure uh, the court outside. Don't measure where the, the pagans or the Gentiles will be. Leave that out. It's going to be given over to the nations, and they're going to trample over it. They're gonna, just going to make a mess of it, make a muck of it for 42 months. Go take account of my church. Now, interestingly here is what's being done in the background is what's being kind of instructed through this metaphor is the extremely important reality, the connection, the proximity between God's presence and his people. It's interesting here, it's not go take a tally of those who show up for Sunday morning worship. Or don't, it's not, go take a tally of those who support, you know, pro-life. Or go take a tally of those who won't say the bad words when everybody else is saying the bad words. It's not connected to morality. It's not connected to those who sing the funny songs Sunday mornings. It's not connected to those who have that very spiritual language and understand what the word begat means. And maybe by the time they graduate from high school, depending on the type of their church, they might actually even know what propitiation means. No, it's instead, it's a measure of those that have the presence of God. Those that live in the face of God. Those that know their God. And it's one of those just wonderfully obvious realities. But so obvious that sometimes we forget it, don't we? The reality of Christianity meaning living in the presence of God. And if we're really going to push kind of on our own past, push on our own story, push on our own kind of camp, to see the danger for, we'll say Presbyterians, of building up head knowledge at the expense of love. You should build up head knowledge. You should learn everything you possibly can. (laughs) But learn it as gasoline for a fire, as fuel to increase your love for Christ, but to, to instead manufacture some form of religion that is not captivated with being in the presence of God. 
Now, we've been labeled the frozen chosen in the past. That's one of those kind of derogatory terms that's thrown out against Presbyterians. And uh, I'd love to say that uh, it historically was wrong. And many times it's been actually quite accurate. Not the way that it was intended. Not because we don't have a healthy understanding of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I would say historically Presbyterians have been brilliant at that. But actually because you look at the history of the Presbyterian church, we have struggled with liberalism so much. What is liberalism? Liberalism is just simply trying to take Christianity and remove it from the presence of Christ. To keep the ethics, to keep the values, to keep the emphasis on love and kindness, and to remove it from the presence of Christ. So that it's no longer a a religion or a reality that's lived in God's presence, but instead a culture I'll be honest, it's one of the great concerns I have as we continue to grow and build buildings and move on and get larger as a church is I would hate for us to see this church move to the point where we simply become a social club instead of one living in the very presence of Christ. All right, so verses 1 through 3, we see laid out here God interacting with his people, telling John to go measure out the length and breadth of the church to, to categorize uh, God's people and to recognize they live in his very presence. And in verse 3, two witnesses are introduced. Um, I would love to present to you all of the different possibilities for who these two witnesses have been interpreted as throughout history, but there are at least 14 different pairs that I've counted. I'm not going to continue counting after that. The reason being is because in these section verses 4 following, John mixes so many metaphors for who these two guys are, what they're doing, that people kind of get lost in trying to pin it down. Is it Moses and Elijah? Is Abraham, Peter and John? Two local bishops that were in this area that died horribly about 15 years before this letter was written. Those guys happened. I think all of those are kind of missing a little bit because I think of what's actually happening here is, again, thinking John's telling the story of the church in metaphors and pictures. It's a Polaroid picture snapshot of what the church is and what she's doing. And I think what's being captured here is the church is being personified in two people. They do end up largely looking like Moses and Elijah, but they're being personified in two people. And these two are the olive trees and the two lampstands. And again, you can kind of see what's being captured here because what are the lampstands? Lampstands have stood for the same thing all throughout the church. Jesus told us at the very beginning of this book, what do the lampstands represent? Chapter 1. They represent the churches themselves. So these two men are representative of the churches themselves. And these two in Zechariah have the two olive trees. They have the Spirit of God. So they're representing, again, the nature of what it means to be Christian, to be God's people. You have His Spirit and you're part of the church. I'll say that again, to be Christian is to have his spirit and to be part of the church. We have such a low view of the church today. 
Verse 5 is where the tension is introduced of trying to get God's people to understand both of the extremes of what it means to be Christian at the exact same time. How easy is it to be Christian? Well, verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying Elijah. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood, uh, Moses, and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, Moses, as they often as they desire. It's presented here in these large picture Old Testament uh, illustrations of how the prophets used to interact with the enemies of God. When it came time to participate in combat with the enemies of God, God's prophets were invincible. They stepped into the arena and said, you want to go toe-to-toe with my God? This is laughable. Lions, no chance. Fiery furnace, no chance. Oh, you want to see lightning come down? Fine, soak, it, uh, soak the altar as much as you want. It's not going to help. Fire come down from heaven, consume the entire thing, stone included. You won't let my people go? That's fine. We'll nuke the entire nation. Ten times, actually, for that matter. It it doesn't matter. God's prophets were invincible in their interaction with the enemies of God. And what a beautiful portrait capturing that great reality of God's lovely perfection being extended, or protection being extended over his saints. So we prayed about in Psalm 112, didn't we? How God perfectly protects all of his people. There's no aspect of their life that is uncovered or where they are not protected. But the other tension showing up in verse 7, that when they finished their task, when they finished their witnessing, when they finished their testimony, well then, their time's up. I think it's the famous McShane quote, right? I think it was McShane. I'm invincible as long as I have a job to do. And then not anymore. When they finish their testimony, then the Lord allows for the beast, the one who is so closely connected with the forces of evil, to rise from the pit and to take them away. You get to see so much of what it means to be a Christian here. Now, again, praise God, this isn't our story, but this is our family story. If you were going to read a genealogy of the Christians of today, this is the most common story. There's other parts of the world, just not our story. The forces of evil make war on them, and by all external circumstances and external metrics, it looks like the forces of evil win, that they conquer them and they kill the people of God. In fact, actually, they're so effective at it that their dead bodies lie in the street and everybody laughs at them and they're not able to even be buried. Verse 8, specifically, they lie in the great city 
And again, this helps us understand the metaphor that John is using, (laughs) the great city that is symbolically spiritually. It's called Sodom, Egypt, where the Lord was crucified, which has, again, given commentators uh, conundrums and fits for uh, ages because those three locations are completely separate and not the one that he's actually talking about. Sodom, and it's not around. Egypt, not there. Lord's crucified Jerusalem, but any time the phrase great city is used in the book of Revelation, it specifically refers to Babylon. Every single time the great city, that phrase is used, it's Babylon. And what he's meaning here are the forces of evil. Their bodies lie out in the world, in the kingdom of darkness, and are destroyed. They lay there. For a season, in fact, even so far, verse 9, three and a half days, that's the magic number in this chapter, this half of perfection, three and a half days, uh, the people, the nations, the language, they'll, they'll gaze at the dead bodies, refuse to let them be placed in a tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been destroyed. And it's interesting actually how it gives us here in this verse 10 an explanation as to how the the world sees the message of Christianity. The pagans rejoice over their destruction because the world views the message of Christianity as being torment to those who dwell on the earth. And you think, well, how can the message of Christianity be viewed as torment to those who dwell on the earth? Just watch anyone arguing for pro-life causes right now in the public arena. I'm not even talking about sin. I'm not talking about arguing for Jesus is the only way to heaven. All I'm arguing for is we shouldn't kill babies in the womb. And people will say... Yeah, that's a message of torment. How dare you tell me how I'm supposed to spend my decisions, my body, my life. Much less once Christianity comes out and says Christ is the only way to heaven. Of course, people hate that message. Both of these tensions being held there in front of us of the immortality of the saints until their cause is up. God protects them, but at the same time, the persecution, the hatred, the rejection of the world. I spent some time thinking through for this church specifically, kind of, which of those perhaps do we not understand as well? Like as a pastor, I want to give proper application and want to make sure that where we're weak, we get strengthened up and shored up. Which of those do we not maybe understand as well that the, the immortality until our cause is up or the, the reality of, of persecution and suffering in the world? And I realize I don't think it's either one of them, actually. I think it's probably more that we just forget that we're fighting at all. I suspect that's probably the reality. It's not that we have forgotten that we're safe until God calls us home, or we've forgotten that, you know, that the world hates us. I think it's just we've forgotten in a, we're in a fight at all. And I, there are a number of reasons for that. One is, uh, praise God, how marvelous it is that we live in a culture that has been so influenced by Christianity in the past. 
that it's still socially acceptable for it. And praise God for that. To praise God that we, by and large, have enough wealth that nobody really wants to upset the system too terribly much right now. We really don't want to kind of poke too much on the other side because everybody's got so much money, they don't really want to change anything. And again, it limits the impact on these things. But I do wonder, again, for our own spiritual development, how much we might kind of be different, how we would live differently if we remembered on a day-to-day basis that everyone that doesn't know Christ hates us. They may not always tip their hand with that. But the world hates us. Your flesh hates you. The devil, you obviously know this one, hates you, but we forget that. I mean, I'm step one step further. Think about even just the way that we pray. How many of our prayers are for relief from specific difficult circumstances versus against the world, the flesh, or the devil? In combat-oriented prayer. How much of our prayers are just simply doing triage for those that have already been wounded and not actually combat-oriented, dealing in any way with advancing the kingdom of Christ? I'm not saying we don't do both. We should do both. But again, I would just encourage you to think about your own life. Think about the percentages. I'm going to guess most of us, it's like 99% on this category and maybe 1% on this category if we do well. We forget that we're in combat. We forget that we're in the midst of fighting. We forget that the Lord is doing something in this way that we are soldiers whether we like it or not. And I suspect that's also part of why for so many of us we struggle. We want to be more committed to the Lord God, but we just sometimes can't seem to find the motivation. Well, yeah, there's no motivation because we're not, there's nothing at risk, nothing at stake, seemingly. And I think the rest of the chapter is extremely tender for those that are in the middle of the combat and feel it. Those that are in the heat of battle, the rest of the chapter is the right remedy and the right solution for them. But I think for many of us, the rest of the chapter here has very little emotional impact because we've lost the reality of how hard the fight actually is. You see, the rest of the chapter is the, is the victory. It's the end of time. The rest of the chapter is where time comes to a conclusion, the great day where Jesus returns. In verse 10, you have the pagans rejoicing over the church that, excuse me, they think they've won for a season. They think they've defeated the church. They've killed the people. They've left their bodies scattered in the street. They win, it seems, for a time. But in verse 11, God says, no, you don't win. And instead raises the church to life. Raises all of God's people to life. And of course, a great fear falls on the pagans. No joke, it does. And then in verse 12, time ends. The great day arrives. The Lord calls his resurrected to him. They go up to heaven and then together the armies of God descend upon the earth for victory. Come up here, 
They went up to heaven in a cloud. The enemies watched him. That point, the earth ends. The great earthquake happens. The city falls. 7,000 people are killed. Again, a metaphorical number. That's a, a lot of folks. Everybody's terrified. They acknowledge that God is win. Oh, yeah, by the way, the second woe is passed. This is a fun one. He never actually tells us what the third one is. A classic John. He explains exactly what the first one is, mentions in passing that was the second one. Not exactly sure what part in the third one he never actually tells at all. Verse 15, that we see the consequence of this great return, though, where God's people return with Christ Jesus into the, uh, the created order as it ends. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, the loud voices in heaven. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. The kingdom of God has come in full. The consummation has happened when we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is it in fullness. All of it, the the distinction between God's reign in heaven and God's earth is removed. He is complete and total in the fullness, the understanding of his victory. Full, Full and total consummation. And the consequence, verse 16, all of the elders begin to worship. Everybody's excited. And they do a a profound theological move here in the end of verse 17 in their song. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, similar language we've already seen, who was and is and is to come. Oh, wait, no, that's not right. That's what they sang last time we saw them. But now they're singing a different song. The one who was and who is, but there is no to come. Because time is over. Because the victory has arrived. Because the kingdom has come. He has begun to reign. It is the fullness of the consummated reign of Christ. Psalm 2 has come into its fullness. The nations raged in vain and they've been destroyed. It's time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of God's servants, both small and great. And in verse 19, the greatest reward of all, again, it's told symbolically to the Jews, but the Ark of the Covenant is opened and the very presence of God is let loose in his people. We dwell in his very presence. (laughs) Again, think about for a Jew what that would have been kind of mentally for them to think through. The Ark of the Covenant being opened. I mean, this is a, a box that's so sacred that if you touch it, you die. One person got to go into it one time a year, and that was scary for that guy. He had all kinds of rules and stipulations and rituals he had to do. And here it's being opened so that the smallest in the church... The lowest in the church may be in God's very presence. And I would end with this very brief application. I love the presentation of the finality here of the the great consummation of God, the victory that is given. And I do again wonder how closely that aligns with our desires. If we were honest... And I had started, before worship even started, giving everybody a piece of paper and said, write down the three things that you want the most. More than anything else in your whole entire world, what are the three things you want the most? Maybe to to feel loved. 
because I just don't right now. I don't like that. Maybe it's some long-running conflict that you've had with a, a spouse or a friend or family. For that to go away. Maybe it's, you know, honestly, I just don't want to work anymore. I'm tired. I want to be a lazy bum forever. I'm just tired. I think it's interesting that I would imagine for most of us, the three things that we long for the most, maybe only one of them would have been a thing that would have been mentioned here, the removal of sin. I suspect it highlights actually the failings of our desires that, again, this verse 19 where God lets us into the very presence, the Ark of the Covenant's cracked open in front of us. And that's not something that is dominating our lives, that we long for that. For the destruction of the enemies of God, not something that we long for. For the fullness of the kingdom of God to arrive. It's not something that we fully long for. And again, I suspect it's because we've, we've fallen asleep. We've forgotten that we're fighting. And again, praise God. What that is a reflection of is those that came to these shores the first time it was settled by Europeans. They came with death on their heels. Being killed for their Christianity. They came with blood everywhere. And they were so successful by God's mercy at starting a wonderful country that here we are hundreds of years later and we still don't carry the sting that Christianity had for them. How marvelous of a job they did. But maybe it's time that we spend a little bit of extra effort mentally to engage our brain to be reminded the great conflict that exists this side of the grave against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the victory that's in Christ Jesus. Oh, Lord, forgive us our sins and wake us up. Again, just wake us up from our slumber. We pray for Christ's sake, amen.